All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, senior food editor Andy Barragani talks with James Beard award-winning writer John Birdsall about a piece that John did in our August issue. Yep, it was August. On avocado toast, and basically, why are we still talking about avocado toast? And essentially, it's a piece like how like avocado toast became like the most loved thing in America among certain food types, and then it became like the most hated thing in America among certain food people, but still really good. Like I like putting avocado on toast and then tomato oil, maybe a little chili flakes, maybe a little Malden sea salt. So John wrote a beautiful piece about that, and he talks with him, and then. Andy chats with, wow, it's like the Andy episode. This is a Rappo-free episode, by the way. I'm just doing the intro, and then it's all Andy after this. Andy uh, talks with Emil Stonic, editor for our new vertical called Basically, which is our sort of instructional website to teach you how to cook. Uh, and they talk peach desserts. Published a bunch of them last week with only five ingredients each. So hit the market and go make some peach desserts. All right, here's Andy Barragani and John Birdsall. John Birdsall. Yes. Such a pleasure to have you here. And I can't really say the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, but uh, the, on the BA podcast. <laughs> Something's going to be cooked up here, so, yes. so perhaps it's appropriate. So I have to ask you, do you remember the very first time you had an avocado toast? I do, indeed. Um, and I have to say that the first time that I had an avocado toast was reading about it. Um, so maybe that's sort of appropriate. But I was a young uh, line cook at a restaurant in San Francisco called Greens. Um, this is like mid-1980s. Crazy Very enough. famous restaurant in San yes, Francisco. still exists. Um, and the opening chef had been Deborah Madison, Madison, who's, you know, wonderful cookbook author and person. Um, and she, she, she had just left the restaurant and a new chef, Annie Somerville had come in. And one day Annie said, oh, if you want to look through the old files, like Deborah's old files, you know, the restaurant had been founded like, you know, three years before, um, you, you know, go ahead, you know, you can sit in the office and do that. And I found this file of Deborah's sort of ideas for sandwiches. And one of them was um, sort of grilled uh, Levin bread. Um, and, you know, at that time, grilling over mesquite was this sort of hot, sexy thing, you know, it was the era of California cuisine. And then, um, you know, she just said to smear some, you know, deliciously ripe avocado on it, drizzle with fruity olive oil and sprinkle a bit of salt on it. And this had kind of lodged in my imagination. So I did it at home, although I didn't have the mesquite grill. I just toasted my bread. Um, and it became one of my favorite snacks um, all through, you know, especially being a line cook. You kind of come home, you're exhausted. There's essentially nothing to eat except for like cereal. And you need um, something that's quick that you could assemble in, in minutes. Yeah. And that just had this uh, kind of explosive, like fruity quality, both from the avocado um, and the, the the sort of sweet buttery olive oil mm. that I used for it. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I feel like I had a grounding. You know, I had this sort of classic, you know, 1980s California era grounding in avocado toast. You know, inspired by uh, by the genius of Deborah Madison. Yes. Wow. I asked because you wrote a you wrote a piece in our August issue of Bon Appetit entitled "Why Are We Still Talking About Avocado Toast?" Yes. Why indeed? Why are we? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's um, for those who haven't read the story, how did you go about doing the research? You mentioned so many different restaurants, West Coast, East Coast. Um, yeah, so I, I had I had you know like anyone with a with even a passing interest in food, uh, I have been immersed in the 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 phenomenon of avocado toast from I guess 2013 or something when it. 2014, when it when it when it kind of exploded in the popular imagination, uh, you know, trendy restaurants in New York that I read about were serving it. Um, I had my own memory of my own kind of private, you know, uh, you know, California version of avocado toast. So I was slightly amused by it, you know, slightly amused by the frenzy um, by avocado toast suddenly suddenly being in fashion. Um, and when I when I when I pitched the story, it had, it had, it had, you know, avocado toast had been um, kind of sexy and stylish and popular, and then had fallen into disrepute. Mm-hmm. Um, it became that thing in the kind of day-to-day food conversation um, that 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 just happens with things that sort of flare up really hot, which is that it it becomes sort of toxic in some way. You know, it was it was it was it was not cool anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather quickly. I mean I, you say twenty thirteen, it's the it, trend is Yeah, incredibly quickly. Um, you know, so you saw it kind of being the the um, you know the signature dish um, the iconic dish of trendy places and then you could sort of see it kind of fall down the trend um, you know the trend slope and it would be in kind of less trendy places it would Panera be, Bread or yeah yeah exactly is it and on then, IHOP and or then, Denny's now at this point I'm not sure yeah <laughs> probably I mean there's some yeah they probably squeeze it out of a bag like like a um, like guacamole or something. Yeah, I'm sure guacamole is not really happy about avocado toast. Yeah, and and so it 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 just seemed like it like the like the like the rise and fall of avocado toast really captured something about the speed and the frenzy at which foods, even simple foods, um, get talked about, get uh, shared, get sort of idolized, um, especially on social media, you know, Instagram. Um, and so it seemed like an interesting, um, um, perhaps a cautionary tale mm-hmm. or maybe just a window into, into looking at, at, uh, at how, we, how, how, how we think about food, how we, how we use food to really build like personal brands, um, and then how we turn on those foods once they're no longer, um, you know, once they're no longer hot. Yeah. In some ways, it's almost like consuming avocado toast is like uh, you're buying some kind of cultural capital of like— yeah. Yeah, you are, and and the sort of first wave of, shall we call them the cultural capitalists or something? You know, the people who, kind of, are on the forward edge of trends. You know, then they suddenly disown it. Uh, it's unfashionable, and then you see, maybe those of us who kind of aspire to you know stylishness or something, sort of picking it up, and you can sort of trace it go all the way, you know, down the, down the trend slope. Mm. Now, this this three ingredient, very simple dish, avocado toast, it's not new. You mentioned how it goes, you found a recipe in 1920 in a a newspaper in in California. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, of course, the history of avocados, 
the avocado itself is indigenous to um, Central America and what is now Mexico. And it became kind of adopted in California very early on. Um, we don't know exactly when the first avocado tree was planted in um, you know, California, which at that time was probably part of Mexico or, you know, certainly the Spanish Empire. But it became, you know, Southern California became the place where a lot of amateur horticulturalists at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century would just uh, sort of plant trees, um, graft varieties together, trying to develop avocados that had sort of better and more abundant flesh, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, you know, where the skins were uh, kind of softer, it was easier to peel, the pit was smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, it's kind of this delightful story of this movement of horticulturalists in Southern California, um, just kind of working on their own. Um, and it was a backyard fruit tree, um, you know, a lot of people with of even kind of modest means in Southern California um, around 1900 had uh, lots of fruit trees in their backyards and front yards it was it was one of the it, it was one of the attractions of living in Southern California especially if you'd come from the east you know you could have persimmons and figs and oranges and lemons and avocado trees and in your yard and once you plant an avocado tree and it fruits you know, you have to do something with all of the with all of the fruit that it produces, mm. um, and kind of spreading it on toast was a very easy kind of natural natural thing for you know backyard horticulturalists mm. to do. Um, so yes, I found I found a reference in 1920. There may be an earlier one even, um, but yeah, a paper a newspaper called the Covina Arius. Um, which is in you know what we now think of as you know East LA, mm-hmm. um, and just some some guy who was saying, hey, this is this is my favorite thing to do. Um, you know, it's 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 the avocado toast that we now know and uh, love, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jessica Kozla, the chef of uh, Squirrel in Los Angeles, she mentions, um, I guess, how at times like she doesn't have avocado toast on the menu, and that she only uses local avocados. And then I thought, you know, even people who really love food, people who are people who are in, in the industry, they don't think of avocados as a seasonal thing. They just see it right. every year round yeah. at their grocery store. And of course, it's you know, it's no different with you know most things that we eat. Is that is that we no longer think of them as really seasonal things. That's the funny thing about avocado toast because, you know, for me, it was really localized in a, in a, in a time and, and especially a place, you know, Southern California. Um, it's really tied to the land in a deep way. So it was very ironic to see avocado toast become this, um, you know, kind of rootless, landless thing that would be in restaurants, you know, in New York, that would be all around the world. You know, another reason why probably why avocado toast was maybe the the perfect thing to go global was that until the late 1990s, um, there were stiff um, import penalties Mm -hmm. on on avocados grown in Mexico. So really, um, you know, for most of the 20th century, the only avocados that Americans eat came from California, um, and they had to rely on the growing seasons there. Um, once, once, once the Mexican market was open, then you know we all had access to lots of avocados 
essentially year round, um, and the price became you know relatively relatively cheap. But yeah, you know, Jessica at Squirrel is in a way sort of a holdout. And there's some chefs who are just avoiding avocados at all and not featuring them on the on their menu. I know Gerardo Gonzalez of Lalito in New York. He's not he's not featuring any avocados, and he's doing a kind of California Mexican inspired menu. Right, which is which is kind of interesting because Gerardo, in a way, kind of made his name on uh, on avocado toast at El Rey uh, at El Rey. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, you know, when I spoke with Gerardo, he was. Uh, quite adamant about <laughs> keeping avocado toast off his menu. Um, he he had he had posted something on Instagram, um, you know, w- 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 and I think he used a hashtag, you know, like never, like never avocado toast, something never like that. Again. Yeah, yeah, um, and and yeah, and his you know his reasons are many. Um, you know, for one, he just feels like if you're a chef, you know, hanging your menu on avocado toast, you know, you need to get a little more imaginative. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and also, you know, with with the worldwide appetite for avocados now, um, there's, you know, avocados uh, take their toll on um, sort of landscapes that are producing them, especially in Mexico. So, you know, areas being deforested to plant avocado trees, you know, very much like sort of coffee perhaps in an mm-hmm. earlier time or sugar cane or something like that. Um and Gerardo is very sensitive to that, um, and also he's he just sort of told me that New York, New York City is just a terrible place to try to serve avocados, um, because, <laughs> um, you know, he, especially in the summer in New York's heat and humidity, avocados, you know, he said well, over ripe. Yeah, yeah, he said you know in the morning you'll have perfectly ripe avocados, and then by that, that evening, evening they're sort of you know bruised and black, and you can't Stuff. really use them. So um, it's very very expensive and very wasteful. It's very expensive. <clears throat> I mean, I'm a California native, and I remember. I'm sure the prices have changed, but I remember my mother getting organic California avocados, yeah. and they were maybe a dollar each. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> granted, this was like early 2000s, but I'm sure they're a, a little bit more expensive now. But over here, oof, an organic avocado in New York City, it's it's 350 Yeah. It right. Gets, but you know, if you perhaps aspire to a certain a certain way of living, perhaps that's 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 no impediment. Well, I will say I'll, I will I'll pay that price for an avocado and make my own avocado toast. What I won't do is, which I feel like a lot of people who are in the industry, who are cooks, writers, they're not going to buy uh, avocado toast. But so many people do and continue to do and pay. Nine, twelve, fifteen, sixteen dollars for a three-ingredient dish. When doing your research, how many avocado toasts do you think you had to consume? <laughs> you listed, I feel like, over over ten restaurants uh, spanning from the west to the uh, east. Coast. I probably, I probably did go to ten places. Uh, they didn't all show up in, in the story, but I, I really wanted to focus on you know L.A. because in so many ways. Um, it, it felt ironic the way th- that avocado toast had had kind of evolved in LA. Um, you know, it really was and is part of the landscape, which you can you know see at a place like Squirrel. And then, but then also, you know, because it's LA, because because uh, it's a very kind of 
stylish and fashionable place, um, but also a place where trends kind of flare up and die quickly. Um, it also seemed like like the perfect place to to sort of feel the tension between something that's rooted in the ground and then something, you know, and then this whole other uh, kind of avocado toast uh, that really has very none or, or very little understanding um, of the roots of it, but it's just pure um, sort of fashion mm-hmm. and. Um, like excitement and this idea that, you know, a lot of the current manifestation uh, of avocado toast in LA is really uh, Australian. Yeah. Um, you know, really came out of Melbourne uh, cafe culture, but has just kind of exploded in this um, you know, elaborate way. Now you mentioned restaurants, Squirrel, Johnny and Vinny's, where else? You went to Cafe Jatan, Goldie's. Goldie's. <clears throat> right. um, did you have a particular favorite? Yeah, the one at John and Vinny's. Uh, the ugly one. <laughs> yeah, the ugly one. I mean, <laughs> you know, the one at Squirrel, I mean, all of the food that I've tasted at Squirrel has has just had this uh, incandescent quality. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sort of glows. and it, She has the touch, I like to say. She, she has a touch. Uh, and maybe more than that, she has uh, an extremely strong point of view. John and Vinny's um, avocado toast was this very sort of classical expression in a way. Um, you know, to me, it seemed very much aligned with um, the early history of avocado toast in California, where it's very um, modest in a way, um, you know, very much focused on the simplicity of the ingredients, um, not piling too many things on, like just enough avocado. And then with 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 the egg on top, it's kind of the way that um, I didn't grow. It's a grow- fried egg, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fried egg, which is optional. Um, but but the fried egg is in a kind of style that I like, sort of an Asian style, where where it's like you fry it over really high heat. And so it kind the of— The lacy Yeah, edges. it gets lacy yeah. and crispy, you know, rather than, rather than really slowly. So it's this, you know, kind of— um, soft white, so yeah, everything together really seemed really seemed to get at the essence, the sort of historical essence of avocado taste. There's a there's a line in the article where you post a pic of uh, one of the avocado toasts, and you describe it as, and I quote. It's like, look at me, I'm living my bomb life and have the photographic evidence to prove it. Right. It's everything I hate about Instagram and aspirationalism and using food as a lifestyle maker. It's also, I admit, everything I love about those things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, like everyone else, I, you know, spend a lot of time pouring through Instagram, um, <laughs> sort of, you know, presenting my own narrative, shall we say, on Instagram, which, you know, often entails... Um, you know, boasting about the delicious things that I'm eating uh, and trying to make them look, you know, especially pretty. Um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to our readers. It's quite hard. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is hard. And and it's it sort of gets to the heart of the story, which is that, you know, avocado toast, something really simple and delicious, can be turned into, you know, can easily, of course, be turned into a narrative. Um, and Instagram is, you know, the place to tell narratives, especially about food. It is one of those things that I struggle with looking, I mean, working at a, at Bon Appetit and um, also just being in the food industry now for 10 years, like I, I have felt the pressure to post photos of food. And when I look back at my Instagram, I mean, I've had it for maybe three, four years and I posted a maybe 140 photo, photos. That's not a lot. I yeah. mean, compared to my colleagues where they post hundreds, if not thousands of photos and, um, 
I, I, I wouldn't say I'm bad at it. I just, sometimes I forget or it's almost, I don't, uh, I, I, I feel I can't rise to the pressure in that regards because you want that kind of perfect image and you want the likes um, and that kind of um, self-validation. <laughs> it's, it's hard because I actually don't love photos of dishes or finished foods. I have been posting more uh, photos of finished dishes because I think that's what people want. Yeah. But I tend to love photos of like a single ingredient or something that's imperfect. Right. And that's beyond food, I think. Generally, like my aesthetic is drawn to things that have a touch of grit to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, you can see, you know, right now I'm involved in a project where I'm writing a new biography of James Beard. And so I'm, right now I'm kind of immersed in the food media world of, you know, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, you know, the world of early gourmet magazine, lots of what were called women's magazines uh, at the time, you know, Better Homes and Gardens and and all of that. And I mean, in a way, nothing has changed or the thing that's changed now is just the rate at which things um, go into fashion and fall out of fashion. Mm. Um, rapidly. Yeah, rapidly. You know, so there was always this pressure even, say, in the 1950s to you know, write about the newest elegant French restaurant in New York City and, you know, to really kind of style yourself as like a bon vivant, um, a gourmet, you know, somebody somebody who traveled the world easily and ate at the best places and knew how to order wine. So in a way, uh, as I say, nothing has changed ex ex except the pace at which we um, are able to do that. Um, and, and a yeah. social media to blame for that? I mean, <laughs> is social media to blame or is it merely, you know, the thing that we've always wanted, you know, the kind of easy, you know, essentially painless way, uh, you know, for us to kind of tell our own stories. You mentioned um, you're doing research and uh, you're writing the biography on James Beard. Have you come across a recipe for avocado toast <laughs> at all? No avocado toast, although I think it also points to, you know, the way that our Perhaps concept of recipes has changed. You know, certainly in the 1930s, when uh, not Beard but other food writers uh, on the West Coast uh, were writing about avocado toast, it wasn't something that would kind of rise to the level of a recipe. You know, with like a list of ingredients. In the few instances where I found it, it just tends to be a quick description, almost like a kitchen tip or like a kitchen hack. You know, it's like, oh, say if you have ripe avocados. If you, you happen know. to have ripe avocados, yeah, of course. And of course, everyone had you know like a like a loaf of you know probably bad white bread in the bread box. And so, you know, you could quickly make avocado toast. You know, maybe that's something else that's changed. Maybe simplicity has become luxurious in a way. You know, before, say, you know, much early in, uh, say, the 20th century, things that were luxurious and simple were very expensive things, you know, like caviar or, you know, foie gras that if you lived in the U.S. you could only get canned from France. Mm. Um, you know, now our, our sort of concept about what's, what's luxurious um, has changed. So just, you know, three pure ingredients put together is really the height of luxury for us. Now, how do you, what is your ideal avocado toast? If you were going to make your perfect avocado toast... I would say so two down to the things. bread. Yeah, down to the bread. I mean, I have to say that the bread 
and the olive oil are essential. I mean, I'm just taking for granted that there are going to be delicious avocados. Um, I'll pay three fifty for one mm. if I if if I need. You to. have like you have beautiful I avocados, a high flesh to to pit ratio, and super buttery, <laughs> not fibrous at all, not, yes. not watery. So, uh, so yeah, bread is everything. Since I live in the Bay Area, um, <laughs> you know, I grew up eating Acme bread. Of course. Steve Sullivan's Steve Sullivan. Acme. So I would go to the Acme bakery that's on San Pablo Avenue yeah, yeah. in Berkeley where they still bake some loaves there. It's not the big kind of central central baking baking facility. They have one in Ferry Building, right? The, they still yeah. Have that? yeah, yeah, they do. Um, the but, Ferry Building Farmer's Market in San Francisco. Yeah, they have a counter there where they do where they do bake as well. But yeah, and sort of part of it would be lining up on Saturday morning um, out in front of Acme <laughs> and getting my loaf. Um, and probably for that, I would go with a sourdough batard and olive oil. You know, I'm really wedded to um, really sweeter, more buttery California oils. I'm right there with you. We have this debate constantly downstairs in the test kitchen. And... Uh, and that's it. Um, so slicing, but not fanning. Um, so sort of slicing and partially mashing into the bread. Um, no toasting the bread? Oh, duh, of course. <laughs> yeah, the bread has to be toasted um, toasted on the, on the darker side. Nice. Um, you know, I grew up uh, with a grandmother who for breakfast would give us uh, really blackened sourdough toast with tons of really salty butter on it. Sounds delicious. <clears throat> so yeah, um, so I'm really wedded to the to the dark toast. Um, yeah, avocado and the olive oil and just some salt. Oh, and a twist of pepper, a grind of pepper. Twist of pepper. And oh, and I do- uh, A little bit of acid. Uh, no, no, no acid. acid. See, because the avocado and, yeah, so the avocado and even the olive oil to some extent should have- just a really subtle amount of acidity mm-hmm. that will that will be enough that will sort of keep that in tension, and that's something that I found in the my first um, sort of Deborah Madison inspired avocado toast mm-hmm. was um, just you know if you have a good avocado, it should have enough subtle acidity so that so that that's all you need. You don't need to ramp it up. The final element would be, as I said, grinding black pepper. And the mixture of pepper that I use um, <laughs> is one that Richard only described in Simple French Food in 1974, which is a mix of three parts of black peppercorns, two parts of white peppercorns, and one part of allspice berries. Wow. Which gives uh, some, makes all the difference. some heat, mm-hmm. some perfume. Warm um, spice. So yeah, it's perfect. Sounds delicious. Definitely would take a bite out of that. Adam Rappaport, he tends to end the podcast with a lightning round. So I know we're both Californians. I'm both Bay Area natives. Yeah, where did you grow up? Grew up in Berkeley, born and raised, out the Bates. Oh, wow. And there definitely some overlap there. So some of these questions will be related to our Bay Area upbringing. I'm ready. Um, So I'll start. First off. Mission style burritos or San Diego burritos? Oh my God, mission style, of course. A's or Giants? Uh, A's. Golden Gate Park or Central Park? Ooh, I have to say Golden Gate Park just because of personal association. Okay. 
Now, I think you might have already answered this one, but Acme Bread or Tartine Bakery? You know, Tartine is, is like a beautiful thing, but Acme is, you know, Acme is home. Acme is home. I agree. And last, Chez Panisse or Zuni Cafe? Ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say... I'm going to say Zuni, actually. Wow. <laughs> I know. You threw me off. You know, just because, just because my, my adult life uh, kind of shifted from Berkeley, where I went to school, to San Francisco and the Castro and, you know, the fact that Zuni is, was in the, you know, s- sort of grew up with the sort of historical gay scene in the Castro mm-hmm. in San Francisco, I have to go with Zuni. <laughs> Such a pleasure. No, no, I, it's, uh, it's, they're both, uh, if you, whichever one you would pick, I, I would be happy with. Uh, I, I would have chose Japanese, but I'm, I'm biased. Being here with you, reading this article and the lightning around, it's, it's, it reminded me how much I, uh, I love the Bay Area. It's a very unique place, we'll say, and special yeah, and delicious. Yeah, it is. I mean, eating well can can be can be pretty effortless. You just have to go to Berkeley Bowl, and <laughs> that's actually was one I, I forgot to mention: Berkeley Bowl or Monterey Market. Uh, uh, that's hard. That's the easy one for me. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, Monterey Market. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with that, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Yeah, my uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Andy, hi. Hi, Emil. How are you? <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so excited. It's like the first time I tried a Snickers ice cream bar. I'm sitting here with you. Oh, Andy. <laughs> like the first time you tried a Snickers ice cream I bar? I was very happy, yeah. I, yeah it's very good. It's yeah, a very it's good very ice cream good. bar. Well, I'm excited too because we're talking about Peaches. Peach desserts. Mmm, peach desserts. So you, for our August, or pegged to our August issue, which is our simple issue, five ingredients or fewer for all of these recipes, um, you developed, what is it, six? Six Six? peach desserts? Yeah. So not only are they peach desserts, but they are six peach desserts that have five ingredients or fewer. Yes. What was that? What was that like? Was that was that like easy because peaches are just so good? Or mm, yes, yes and no. I think like uh, right off the bat, I'll tell you like I'm not the go-to dessert guy. I think mm-hmm. we all know that uh, Miss Claire Savitz is the one who has the, the hand on desserts ah, yes. in the BA test kitchen. But uh, Carla, our food director at BA, she kind of gave me the challenge, and I was ready for it. I'm like, oh, I, I love peaches. Stone fruits are my favorite fruit. And uh, I was up for the challenge. Cool. So you just kind of dove in, and I, it's my understanding that this was it was something of a challenge for you, uh, especially yes. with the, within that kind of five ingredient parameter. And it's like desserts, especially when you're talking about baking. I feel like that's like a real uh, something that people associate with the kind of like a pinch of this and a little bit of that, and like a measured amount of this other thing. And it's like it's not what I think of when I think of simplicity necessarily. So how were, I mean, just looking at some of these, like this peach and berry cobbler with cinnamon cream, which sounds really good. Mm-hmm. How were you able, how were you able to make that happen with just five ingredients? How are you, how did you optimize that process? Well, I had to be really strategic. I mean, the whole, again, like you mentioned, five ingredients or fewer with desserts is a little tricky because 
yes, sugar doesn't count, but then it's like flour does count. And then- oh yeah, we should just be clear about this. So there were there were some parameters. Flour doesn't count, right? Flour does count. Does count. Salt doesn't count. Salt doesn't count. Sugar doesn't count. Sugar doesn't count. And your first fat doesn't count. So whether it's if it's butter or olive oil, but if you use two, then one of them counts as an ingredient. Yeah. yeah. This was really, you know, we developed this like a year ago, and it was <laughs> yeah. really just watching everybody standing in the test kitchen counting on one hand and being like, wait, does flour or sugar count? Which yeah. one? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> It was, I mean, with this, uh, the cobbler, I thought there needs to be some desserts that are still very familiar. And I think when it comes to the lineup, this is definitely, the cobbler was the one that people have seen a version of. And I thought stone fruit, what goes better with stone fruit than berries? So I did a peach and berry cobbler. And uh, this was the last recipe that was developed. Uh, I was struggling with the sixth recipe. I was like, what, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? And I have to give it to Claire Saffitz. She she saved me. She was As like, she often does. She often does. Saves me and well, and all yeah, of us. I wasn't of speaking us. for yeah. I, was I was talking like, about well, you specifically. I meant like, <laughs> all of us. And she was like, Well I was like, How am I gonna do a cobbler just using five ingredients? She's like, two ingredient biscuits. I was like, What? Are you talking about? Yeah, what is a two ingredient biscuit? And she's like, self rising flour and heavy cream. And I was like, Amazing. I'm like, are they going to be good? But they were delicious. And it's basically you take chilled heavy cream and you stir it into self-rising flour, which already has uh, baking powder. And so, and it's already, it's usually already seasoned with some salt and you're ready to go for drop biscuits. So you just mix that. Is there anything, I mean, that just sounds like so simple that I'm like, what's the catch? Like, what do you, is there a certain way that you're stirring it together or whisking it or anything that you're? No, I'm just using like, I'm just keeping everything really cold. Uh, I believe I definitely chilled the cream and then the self-rising flour, I I might've chilled that, but if not, it's okay. And I just stirred that in, tried to not overwork it. And then I just dropped it on uh, the baking dish that was filled with the, the lightly macerated stone fruit and berries, and then bake that off. Wow. Super easy. Super, and then this, super and, easy. And then this cinnamon cream, what's the... I want to do some kind of infused cream just then, rather than just like slightly sweetened cream, I wanted to do something. I thought like a warm spice would go well. Uh, it's usually, warm spice goes really well with stone fruit, but people mm-hmm. don't necessarily think that because like you think of warm spices in the winter and stone fruit in the summer. But uh, it was delicious with like the really sweet, juicy berries on the bottom and um, mm. the crackly uh, biscuit on top and then this like barely whipped cinnamon infused cream. Yeah, this sounds like the kind of thing that you bake when you're like on vacation with your friends. Summer all home, you need, yeah. <clears throat> right, all you need is like a sheet pan or a baking dish and some fruit exactly. and then you can go from it there. It all comes together. Amazing. So one thing that I'm wondering about, I admittedly don't do that much baking um, or anymore. Uh, those days are behind me. Um, well, you know, like when I think about summer fruit, I'm kind of like the person who kind of punts on the on the baking or like the elaborate desserts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll just eat, eat a peach. Yeah. And so when I the thing that makes me nervous when I think about making peach desserts is like, you know, sometimes you open a peach and you you know you cut it down. It's kind of uh, I guess it's. Yeah, you know, from the from the top end, uh-huh. the stem end, stem to, end. The, to the bottom. bottom. And then you separate it the way that you kind of would an avocado. Uh-huh. And sometimes the pit just kind of 
falls out and it's great. And sometimes it's like really stuck in there. And if it's a ripe peach, you're trying to like yeah. dig it out with a sometimes knife. Sometimes it like, rattles. You could shake the peach and you yeah. Could What's the deal with? I mean, is there? How do you deal with that when you have that pit just stuck? so tightly in there and is that some kind of uh, one kind of peach or so you what you're talking about is basically freestone versus clingstone ah. peaches yes 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 so with freestone that's basically where the pit will fall or is uh, is not attached to the flesh or very loosely attached and you could easily take it out the clingstone the flesh clings to the pit uh, those are a little bit, I would advise to not use those if you're baking, mm-hmm. uh, if you're using peaches to bake or, or or to cook with. I think the best ones to go for are freestones. And the way to find that out is they're not going to be advertised at your t- grocery store. I would say go to a farmer's market, uh, especially right now is the perfect time. There's plenty of stone fruit out there. And talk to your farmer if, uh, and ask them, like, are these clingstone or freestones? And your farmer should know. Because they'll know because that's, like, the kind of the tree that they that have. The, exactly. Are, are freestone versus clingstone peaches, are they more or less available in certain places? Or uh, I feel like it – I mean, growing up in California, I feel like it would – I it was it was split. Like I, I remember mm-hmm. having ones where like the pit would easily fall out, but then ones where it's like I would just like eat around the pit until the very very end. But uh, gotcha. So so if you're gonna if you just want to have that like eating a ripe drippy peach over the sink moment, then a clingstone peach a clingstone is or a freestone doesn't matter. But when you're yep. baking, you want to go for those freestone just so that you can. I mean, I guess it's more aesthetic than anything else, yes. right? It's like when you want to get that perfect, perfect, beautiful halved peach where they just both look with the beautiful like deep red flesh and having like it has nothing to do with ripeness. I think a lot of people think that oh, if the the pit doesn't cling to the fl- flesh, uh-huh. then it's it's ripe, it's ready. That's not the case. They're just different varieties, right? So as far as ripeness is concerned. You know, again, like sometimes it's like when you get that really ripe peach, it just feels like a balloon full of juice and it's just like dripping, dripping. Is that the kind of peach that you want when you're baking or are you looking for something a little bit slightly just on the other side of firmness? You know, I I think it's case by case. It depends on the recipe. I'd say something like, let's say to talk to go back to the cobbler. It's okay if your your peach is not the most beautiful, perfectly ripe, juicy peach. It could mm-hmm. be slightly underripe. It's going to get a bit of sugar. It's going to macerate. It's going to soften. It's and it's going to go in cook. the oven. Yeah. It's going to cook. It's you know it's it's uh, so sweetness is going to increase uh, after it's been cooked through. And um, but some other dishes, some desserts like. Um, peaches that are just kind of blanched. There's a dessert where it's peaches and ginger syrup and uh, buttermilk. It's kind of a riff on uh, peaches and cream. Mm -hmm. And it's peaches that are just blanched skin and then they uh, sit in ginger syrup. You want a pretty good peach. You want the flesh to be really nice and juicy and soft. Uh, You don't want it to be underripe. You want a good peach from the get-go for that Mm -hmm. because you're not doing too much to it. You're just really just taking the removing the skin and right. soaking it in in syrup. Right, it's kind of amazing how that how that works the kind of like you can kind of cover up a lot of uh, fruits, mm. like lesser qualities through kind of cooking, cooking or maceration, concentrating those flavors. But, you know, when you've got something where there's nowhere to hide, you really do want that like perfect, like just Perfectly juicy, ripe. bursting mm. peach. Um, so one thing I noticed looking at these recipes is at one point you say, 
um, I can't remember which recipe it is. Oh, it's for it is for the cobbler. Um, you you call for three pounds of mixed peaches. So there's in addition to free stone and the cling stone peaches. Like what other peaches are you? talking about. I'm talking about like white peaches, mm. um, any kind of, I feel like with the cobbler, it's a, you could use whatever kind of peach you like. Mm-hmm. Really, you could use whatever stone fruit you'd like. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went for peaches. So yellow peaches, white peaches, those lovely donut peaches you'll find ah, that are super donut fun. donut peaches. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. Um, so I just thought like, don't be stuck on one peach. Use whatever you could find. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be cooked for an hour so then you're not going to be able to necessarily make out what they are exactly after they've been cooked compared to the other recipes where I really tried to keep uh, their original uh, shape intact. Right, 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 right. So I'm curious about this tapioca pearl pudding you have because <laughs> I'm, I'm a great fan of pudding. I love a tapioca pudding. I love a rice pudding. What you know, I, I and I feel like you don't see a whole lot of tapioca pudding. Uh-huh. It doesn't feel like it's not not that sexy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Tell it's me more little, about this almost, recipe. Maybe retro a bit. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, it very much feels like you know, like Formica Kitchen. Like yeah, teal walls. Definitely. Like so, f- it started off as I wanted to do a riff on um, the Thai dessert with a uh, mango with sticky rice. Ooh. So I was going to do peaches with sticky rice, which I still think is would be very delicious. Yeah, why didn't you do that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, I do know. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Inside uh, But I, then I thought for, for pudding, and I love tapioca pearls. I, I mean, I there's just some items that I, I don't feel guilty at all. And mayonnaise and tapioca pearl pudding, pudding are two of the things that I just love. Not together. Not no. together. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. And um, <laughs> they, I love the mouthfeel. I hate that word, though. And... I thought it would be great with uh, some lightly grilled peaches and crushed pistachios, and it's super creamy, and you get those lovely pearls in your mouth, and I thought it would be great. And Carla and um, uh, Julia Kramer, who was that on the story, also thought so. So, so tapio- you buy tapioca dry, right? Yes. And it's just going to look kind of like orzo or Ex- yes, something like that. Yes, similar to orzo. <laughs> <clears throat> and they're different sizes. Different sizes, like it's tapioca is more round, I guess. If we're really going to talk about orzo, is like a little bit flat, I guess. Okay. Okay. Fine. Okay. Fine. <laughs> fine. Oh, no, I, you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking fregola. For, you were thinking fregola. I was, I was like, thinking. I think he's thinking fregola. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I am looking at another one of these recipes. I'm looking at these peach and raspberry cream pops, and you've got an ingredient in here that I have not seen that much in the. Uh, in published in Bon Appetit magazine, oh, I know. which is nonfat dry milk powder, which feels like one of those ingredients that you see like on the back of breakfast cereal or something. That's like you're supposed to freak out about. What's the What's the deal with nonfat dry milk powder? Is that okay? Well, it is okay, and also you can find it so easily. You could find it everywhere. Just go to like your Gracidis or your Safeway in California. Your is Albertsons still around? I don't know. Okay, so this is but, just code for regular supermarket. Regular right, supermarket, cool. yeah. Uh, and the reason why I added uh, the the cream pops is because they make they give this amazing creamy texture to the cream pops that you the milk would, powder does the milk powder does yeah so I'm using you'll see that there's milk whole milk and the ingredient list there's also heavy cream but the milk powder will give this amazing kind of awesome texture to it so it makes it creamier 
Makes it creamier. See, that's so weird because I would think that non adding non-fat milk powder would like, you know, it just feels like using skim milk or something. But I guess if you have other, you know, you already have cream, you already have milk. Mm-hmm. What's the non-fat? Well, also, it's 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 kind of absorbing any of the excess water from the whole milk. Ah. So, so it's taking away that kind of icy effect you would get if you only used whole milk and you didn't use gotcha. non, non-fat milk powder was there. Gotcha. So it kind of binds up that water that would yes. get icy and instead just helps it all to stay all, creamy. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wild. I had no idea. Yeah. Is there anything else you can do with dry, non-fat dry milk powder? Uh, there's plenty of things you could kind of yeah, – I would toasting it is delicious. Toasting, toasting it? Yeah, you could toast milk, uh, non-fat milk powder. Yeah. And then what? And then you could like sprinkle it all into – sprinkle it onto your oatmeal, see what happens. I haven't tried that, but that could be good. <laughs> yeah, if somebody good. Uh, wants to send us an email, try that and send us an email. That'd yeah. be great. <laughs> Let's talk about meringue clouds, shall we? <laughs> oh God! What, what 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 is going on? I mean, it's a it's a very fanciful sounding name for a dish. Okay, well I'll I'll have to say this. I feel I'll like this is like really like Andy in like restaurant mode. This is like what it is. This on is the, the one menu. that really wasn't meringue edited. clouds yeah, yeah, with yeah. peach curd. <laughs> God. I will have to say this. So originally, this was a dessert story that wasn't five ingredients. And so I had all these kind of ridiculous, crazy ideas, I'll admit, that I thought I'd get away with. And then it became the five-ingredient issue. And so I definitely had to edit myself, and then I got edited a little bit more. <laughs> this was um, a recipe that stuck, stuck out, and uh, Julia fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. I wanted to do meringue clouds kind of to mimic the shape. I saw the kind of famous dessert of 2016, the most famous dessert of 2016, the the corn meringues from Cosme in, uh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in New York City, uh, Enrique Olvera's restaurant. And... So what is that? That's just like a that's like a corn. Yeah, he makes a corn uh, a meringue with the corn husks, and then there's a corn. Just curd. infuses infuses the the flavor of the corn husk into it, or he is it actually toasts the corn husks? I believe, and then he pulverizes it and then adds it to the meringue. Oh, okay. And then okay. he makes a corn curd, and I thought I'm gonna do something where I'm gonna do like these meringue clouds. Um, that in the recipe you make, you could certainly buy them. Um, and they're on the chewy side, which I think is really good with the peach curd. And then I made a peach curd using white peaches and the white flesh and the um, the uh, blush skin. When they're pulverized and pureed, it gets this amazing kind of rosy color that's beautiful. And there's a little bit of rum in it, and it's super mm. delicious. And it's definitely the most restauranty dessert out of all of the uh, peach desserts that I that I developed, but. I love it. I love the way it looks. I'm a sucker for, you know. Kidding. I mean, it Go sounds on, it sounds very fancy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, I have a couple of questions. One is peach skin. I feel like I've seen some recipes where you're cooking with peaches and you have to like blan- score them and blanch them, kind of the way that you would with tomatoes, and just slip the skins off. But in this recipe, you're you're leaving them on, and I I. I think it seems like in maybe all of these recipes you're leaving the skins on uh i think all of them except for the peaches and ginger syrup Uh uh-huh right which in that case it would be like kind of you'd get that kind of toughness of the skin yeah exactly and they're chilled so i want them to be like really cold and Mm -hmm. um with the i love that dessert actually the peaches and ginger syrup it sounds really super delicious and like a little bit of cream cheese mixed with buttermilk is very very delicious Mm. and a pinch of salt hello 
Wait, yeah. so so when are you when are you skinning your peaches? When are you going through the trouble of doing that versus just leaving them whole? Well, I for the ginger syrup, I, I took them off just because I didn't want that skin. But then the other ones, like with the uh, for the peach curd, I left the skin on only because they were going to be pushed through a sieve, so it was going to catch the skin anyways. And I wanted the skin to be pureed so it could give that beautiful color. Mm-hmm. But for the uh, cream pops, um, I believe those I removed the skin too. Maybe not. Um Maybe, maybe not. I Just in case anybody's yeah, Andy developed these recipes a year ago, a year so ago. If he's like forgetting. <laughs> it's not. He yeah. doesn't have short term memory loss. <laughs> no. It's like it's all right. With the uh, with the cobbler, I think it's unnecessary to skin any stone fruit. Just throw them in. They're going to be cooked down, and the skins are nice. Mm-hmm. They have a nice uh, contrast and texture. Um, and then with the tart to ten. I thought that was unnecessary as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that it just helps them to hold their shape. Exactly. And like, you know, yeah, they would really fall apart Yeah, if they didn't have the skin. So I'm also curious about this peach curd because I, you know, I'm familiar with like a lemon curd or even like a grapefruit curd, but you can, so, you you know, it seems that you can also curd a peach. Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. So what is that process like? Well, I made a kind of typical curd with, with egg yolk, well, sugar. What What's the typical curd? The Ty- typical curd is you're basically, some will use whole eggs. I use just egg yolks. Mm-hmm. Um, sugar, I cook that over uh, some simmering water. So uh, like in a double boiler? In a double boiler situation. And then we'll add uh, cubed butter. And then uh, I'll combine that with the peaches that have been, I believe they've been cooked down with a little bit of rum. Mm-hmm. And then that gets blended together, mm-hmm. and so you have this wonderful. I mean, rum and peaches, just like whiskey and peaches, dark liquor goes really well with stone fruit. Mm-hmm. And so I added that to the to the curd and um, pureed it and put it through a sieve to make sure there were no lumps. That cool. was it. How long does that keep? Like, is that the kind of thing that you could make a large batch of and keep make a around? large large batch of? I would keep it for about five days. Oh, okay. Can you believe that uh, our fearless leader is not a fan of peaches? Wait, Adam's, uh, you know, we, we can like just straight up out Adam as being like a weird fruit person. Yeah, it's weird. It's a texture thing with him, I think, more than anything. Like, What's I'm, the deal with peaches? I think it's the, I think he's like, why would you, I don't know if he said this, but I feel like he did. He's like, why would you want a peach if the, when there's nectarines? Why would you want like a fuzzy thing in your mouth? Like I just can't but imagine. I feel like also, he's gonna hear this. So I'm like, well, I know he's gonna hear this. We're talking to you, Adam. <laughs> and also, Adam has never had a cherry. Oh my god! The man's never had a cherry I in his life, you said and that. refuses to eat them. Sour cherries are amazing, or I even a regular they, cherry, but or still. even a regular cherry. I mean, yeah. sour cherry. Forget the sour and, cherry. Yeah, a perfectly sweet cold cherry, oh just sitting god. and just eating like a whole dish of them, spitting the pits out. I don't get it. I don't get it. If anybody, any, if any of you run into Adam Rappaport on the street, you gotta, you gotta say something about the cherries. And we gotta put it, the pressure. We gotta get the pressure on and hand over a perfectly ripe piece. Because you know, it's it. like he's our boss. Like he can, you know, if we're like cherries are good, he's like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> but if you, the listener, approach him and try to sell him on on uh, cherries, you know, maybe it'll work. Maybe it will work. All right, Andy. Well. This has been really fun. So much fun. Such a Everybody pleasure. go make these peach desserts. Yes, please. Eat them. Eat them. Eat them while the eating's good. Mm-hmm. We got a few more months left. The 
The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's, with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.